Greetings, friends. Welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the film review podcast where we review films with a sound effect. There it is. Yes. You chose a good one this time. We, we would also review silent movies if they came up, but they don't lately. So most of the movies you review do have sound effects. It's true. I'm trying to think. I've, I've seen a few films recently that have, like, very little dialogue. Sure. But no like sound a, effects? Like, like pretty, si- com- pretty uncommon. Simon Liang's Days mm-hmm. has very little, if any, yeah. like, actual, like, import, like important words exchange. But uh, you know what? These days, everyone needs a good Foley artist. Yes, indeed. Damn right. Uh, anyway, <laughs> my name is William Bibiani. I'm a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold, and before I introduce myself, I bring up Simon Lang. So you can <laughs> kind of know what you're in for. Another here. one of those podcasts. Yeah, everyone's all sick of them. Like, ah, when will these film critics stop talking about Simon Lang? Um, anyway, wouldn't, wouldn't that be great if yeah. in, if uh, all of these journalists who are grilling every single filmmaker about Marvel movies? Yeah. Like, it inevitably comes up. I'm not exactly yeah. sure why. Uh, but what if they just asked about Simon Lang instead? Yeah. yeah. It's like, hey, Scorsese, what do you think about Simon Lang? And I bet he has a lot of things to say. I'll bet he does, actually. Uh, Denis Villeneuve, what do you think? I, I, would, I wouldn't be surprised whatsoever if Denis Villeneuve had uh, strong opinions as well. But, um, yeah, people like the Marvel movies. Like the Marvel movies. But we're not doing Marvel movies. Oh, no. Not this week. Nope. This week we got uh, we got some new releases. We're reviewing the new film, The Eyes of Tammy Faye, starring Jessica Chastain and Andrew Garfield. We're reviewing the new Clint Eastwood movie, Cry Macho, starring Clint Eastwood. Uh, we've got the new Netflix horror kids movie, Night Books, and the new Melanie Linsky, Judy Greer supernatural comedy, Lady of the Manor. It's a big week, and there's stuff we didn't mm. even get to. No, there, there was. There's a new Sion Sono film that we both are disappointed uh, at yeah. having missed. Yep, uh, kind of pissed off. Actually, it looks yeah. really cool. Nicholas Cage in like a leather suit that explodes in different parts depending on whether he's like he 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 like gets like does things wrong. Like, okay, well then your arm will explode or your your someone your, was your uh, wiener will explode. And it's someone like, someone was kind enough to post a clip, a very brief clip of. Uh, Nicolas Cage in that movie just screaming the word testicles as loud as he can. <laughs> so I'm quite disappointed that yeah, I missed we'll, seeing We'll this get film. to that eventually, and we're sorry we can't bring you that now. But uh, in the meantime, let's get started. Uh, and let's start with, should we start with, uh, what, what do you want to start with? Let's, well, uh, I saw a movie in a theater, so why don't we talk about The Eyes of Tammy Faye? Let's do it. Because that one's uh, not on streaming services right now. Not at the um, moment. No, no, no. The Eyes of Tammy Faye... Uh, is a new film from director Michael Showalter. Michael Showalter got his start as a comedian on the sketch comedy series The State. Mm-hmm. You might remember him as Doug, and he was out of here. <laughs> one, one of many roles. They all played multiple roles. He was a very, State. very... He was a he was, sketch comedy program. That's where I was introduced to him. He was very, very funny. He was also in Wet Hot American Summer. Uh, and then uh, he's, he's actually been directing more, and he directed the Oscar-nominated film... Uh, the Big Sick. The Big Sick, thank you. I don't know how I blanked on that real fast. But The Big yeah, Sick, yeah. which is a great movie. Like he, a uh, legitimately great movie. He wrote, uh, he co-wrote the screenplay for a really funny comedy called They Came Together. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and he, he directed uh, a film called Hello, My Name is Doris with Sally Field, which I'm very fond of. It's yeah. uh, about a, a hoarder, a lonely hoarder who uh, mm. learns to 
socialize in ways she hadn't yeah. before. Yeah, really underappreciated mm-hmm. Sally Field performance in that movie. She's really wonderful in yeah, that film. Yeah. Um, uh, he did The Big Sick. He yeah. did a, a comedy film last year, also with Kumail Nanjiani, called The Lovebirds, uh, which I wasn't so fond of. It was okay. It was a little yeah. more formulaic. But uh, here he is uh, doing... A, it's funny, but it's definitely a drama. And it is the story of Tammy Faye Baker, played by uh, Jessica Chastain, uh, who, along with her husband, Jim Baker, Jim right? Jim Baker, yeah. Uh, they were two of the biggest televangelists of the 1980s, back when Christian television was having a huge surge in popularity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the uh, format of, we will give you entertainment and you call in and give us money uh, to continue doing these good works, uh, started to become uh, a huge industry. Like oh, a yeah. gigantic industry, and it turned out, and this is not a spoiler. This is all reality. This most this is all most people know about them nowadays. Turns out that Jim and Tammy Faye Baker uh, spent a lot of that money on themselves, a lot mm. of that money on themselves. Uh, but um, now well, we this... have a, a drama that people have been trying to make. Uh, there's a documentary called The Eyes of Tammy Faye came out about twenty years ago, and now here we have a feature film about. It. Yeah. Um... This was a time I remember very vividly, the sort of the ascendancy of the televangelist. And televangelists were, uh, at least in the circles I read, not well-respected human beings. They had their fan base, and amongst that fan base, they were very, very popular. Yeah. And mostly everyone else that I was aware of didn't think very highly of them. Yeah, there was um, there was Oral Roberts, he has yeah. his university. I've been to Oral Roberts University oh. in Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, just visiting as a tourist. Uh, Oral Roberts built, it essentially looks like the uh, Seattle Space Needle, which mm-hmm. was like his special prayer conduit. Like he'd go into this private space in this weird science fiction looking building he had built, and that's the only yeah. place where he could communicate with God. So a Tower um, of Babel. More or less, yeah. Um, no <laughs> ironic. Ir- no irony in in the Oof. world of televangelism. Wow. Uh, Jim and Tammy Faye Baker uh, were uh, early proponents of what's known as prosperity theology. Mm-hmm. That is to say, if you are doing good works, uh, if you are doing God's work, you deserve to have money. And if you yeah. are wealthy, that's a sign that God is smiling on you. Yeah, they, there's the long been in in organized religion, particularly Christianity, uh, this idea that I mean, it's in the Bible, isn't it? Like it's easier to get a camel through the ne- the the eye of a of a needle then, than it is to get a rich person into heaven. Right. I'm paraphrasing, but that's the gist. Uh, and there was it's this. A, it's a translation. But like, but the general idea is that piety doesn't come with financial reward, mm. and in fact, those two things are often diametrically opposed. And what Jim and Tammy Faye Baker were espousing was there is absolutely no shame in being financially successful. Mm. That's not a that's not a sin in and of itself. It's a matter of what you do with it. And you know, there's definitely an appeal to that. But when you realize that this is this is a level of like it seems like. You know, maybe that's not so bad, but then they take it to its logical extreme within their own lifetimes, and you see just how bad that can get. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, Jim and Tammy Faye Baker uh, were, yeah, they were early televangelists, and they were uh, also believed in Christianity as sort of showmanship. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, you talk to, to any clergy person, and they'll tell you that there is... Reacting with an audience, there is sort yeah. of a show element to preaching. When, when you uh, preach, when you give a sermon, you're in yeah. front of a crowd, and it is your responsibility but, uh, to keep them engaged. 
But uh, Jim and Tammy Faye Baker started including puppets and really kind of simplified messages so mm-hmm. they could reach you know broader audiences. They traveled around with a puppet show for a little while. Uh, it wasn't until they saw um, Pat Robertson on TV that they got the idea, oh, wait, we could do that too. So they started their own uh, TV network, and that grew by leaps and bounds. People started mailing them in money. They uh, And then more and more money, they expanded the TV show. And uh, you watch some of these shows, and... They, there's a lot of God talk, but there's not a lot of theology or philosophizing in, in it. It's yeah, mostly not, just, not, the hard questions aren't really being yeah. answered. It's basically very reassuring. Yeah, it's it's all very yeah. yeah it's it's they're they're bromides, and then there's mm-hmm. things like we're gonna also gonna have like early talk show segments, like yeah. we're just gonna have a conversation about frosting cupcakes, things that have nothing to do with yeah. anything, and uh, a lot of it was very musically inclined. And Tammy Faye Baker was there to sing. She loved to sing, mm-hmm. and she co-ran all of this with Jim Baker. Uh, they were both essentially business people. Yeah. And they got into a lot of trouble because their church was a business that was tax-exempt. Yeah. And uh, and they said, well, this is all part of spreading God's word, when really it was just raking in money, building buildings, and... and yeah. Yeah. Uh, keeping themselves comfortable. So that's so that's the overarching like that that's the sort of the backdrop of the movie. Um well it, the it, actual like centerpiece of the movie for me though uh-huh. is Jessica Chastain and Andrew Garfield's performances. And I think yeah. they are absolutely wonderful in this movie. I think they're great mm. together. Uh definitely. They're because at the start of the movie we get to see kind of how how sort of optimistic they are mm. and how great everything is going for them and yeah. how happy this is making them. Yeah. Michael Showalter depicts them as naive children. Yeah. Like yeah. they just they just they've got big ideas in their heads and everyone's like, Oh, they'll learn the hard way and then whoops, they succeeded. And their their moral center, who is played by the excellent Cherry Jones. Oh yeah. Uh she she plays uh, Tammy Faye's mom. Yeah. Uh, really underappreciated is, is the one who keeps on asking them what are you doing here this mm-hmm. this is not christianity what you're doing but they just smile and say i i made a puppet a porky pig puppet and this is actually a good way to spread god's word and she kind of like looks at them a little askance mm-hmm. uh, but yeah as as the film continues we do get to see that they kind of got a, a w- in way over their heads, as the film depicts them, mm-hmm. that they they sort of lost control of this thing they created. They succeeded way more than they should have, they, and they, they ended up being responsible uh, for way too much. They attract yeah. the attention of uh, of Pat Robertson, and they also attract the attention of the other great performance in this film, uh, Vincent D'Onofrio, who plays Jerry Falwell. Yeah, uh, Jerry Falwell is a fucking monster, and. Uh, <laughs> Jerry Falwell uh, yeah. had had a, a very open anti-gay uh, slant to his. I wouldn't uh, even his call preaching. it a slant. I think slant. It's that, that was all he had, that was really. his purpose. It's like we yeah. we have to stop homosexuality. Yeah. He said that openly, and yeah. uh, he uh, he was disgusted with Jim and Tammy Faye Baker because Tammy Faye Baker, unlike a lot of these televangelists, was very opening open to the gay community. Yeah, she saw them as people mm-hmm. because. Yes, and <laughs> there's there's a bit in the in the movie where it's actually just her just talking to people who mm-hmm. are gay and talking to people who have AIDS at the time of the AIDS crisis when everyone else was trying to just not talk about it in public in mm-hmm. the conservative community, and that yeah, the, did uh, win Tammy Faye a lot of bonus points with a lot of people even after 
everything went down because there just some credit had to be given to her yeah. for that. And and it was an issue and the film rather frustratingly only brushes up against this. Yeah. But the way this network of televangelists was incredibly vital to uh, Reagan's right wing back yeah. in the early 1980s. Yeah. And how these very uh, bigoted points of views were being proliferated through these televangelists mm. as mouthpieces for the Republican Party. Yeah. Uh, the, the, these, I, I don't even like to call them churches, these sort of bigot businesses mm-hmm. were a big part of politics at the time. And I feel like, you know, Jim and Tammy Faye Baker, Jim Baker especially, uh, is depicted as being very naive about what part he's playing in all of this mm-hmm. but it was and, and, big... and how unaware he is of his own desire to simply be famous and powerful yeah, yeah. yeah well, he clearly is but he doesn't that, he's well i'm willing to admit it even to himself that part i don't mind but yeah they surely were far more aware of uh the power they were wielding to yeah. a large public this is this is where the movie like comes up a little short for me mm-hmm. i actually again i think uh uh jerry jones as well but i i think Andrew Garfield and Jessica Chastain are completely wonderful in these in this movie. I think they find mm-hmm. a lot of interesting facets of these characters a lot of people might not have even wanted to look for. But I feel like the movie itself, as presented uh, by Showalter and others, um, it's a little afraid to get as damning as it probably deserves to be. Yeah. I feel as though, because they're so interested in making sure that we have some affection for the Bakers, and I think the actors are doing most of the heavy lifting there anyway, mm. um, they're, they're not really getting into the two really big underlying uh, uh, themes here, which is one, the enormous hypocrisy of church for profit. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and two, the schism in Christianity between people who wanted to use it as a means to exclusively promote bigotry mm-hmm. and people who actually did have some interest in, you know, love and stuff. <laughs> and the irony that the bakers were kind of both of those things yeah. is that they were enormous hypocrites when it came to uh, exploiting the word of God for financial profit, mm-hmm. but also cared and I think there's something about that that's way more interesting than the movie is able to handle for more than a minute or two at a time. Yeah, there's a couple yeah. of minutes where they're actively it's, engaging it's really with that. really tantalizing for a second. And then yeah. they never really follow up on it very, very well and make the movie actually about that. And it ends up feeling more, at the end, like a really good character piece than what it really could have been, which is kind of about the entire system mm. through the lens of these two. Yeah, and yeah. I feel like it almost gets there. It never quite does. It's not capital G great, but it's still quite good. What I find really fascinating is uh, I've, I've reached the age now where they're making biographies of media figures from my own lifetime. Yeah. Uh, I, Tanya is another example yeah. of this. Tanya yeah. Harding was, uh, she was, she was a joke yes. in the media. Very quickly. She, she was mocked relentlessly yeah. and, and satirized openly. And the same is true of Tammy Faye. And I'm actually glad there's a montage in this film of stuff I remember from my own childhood yeah. about Tammy Faye Baker, like uh, being satirized on Saturday Night Live or being mentioned by comedians. Uh, several of my friends had the T-shirt that they depict in this movie mm-hmm. uh, where uh, it's like a, a big splatter of makeup and sort of a vague face. Mm-hmm. And it says, I ran into Tammy Faye at the mall. I got it. Uh, Tammy Faye Baker was notorious for uh, her ostentatious look. Yeah. Uh, she wore very loud dresses. She had very wild hairdos. And she did wear a lot of makeup. A lot of makeup, yeah. Uh, and yeah, that that's sort of what she was infamous for. Um, well, that that was that was the easiest thing to poke. Yeah, fun at. yeah, um, yeah. 
And as a result, she that's was, where a lot of people yeah. started and where a lot of people stopped. Exactly. <laughs> and, and that she was involved with this scandal of, you know, this church that was uh, just sort of taking money and keeping it for themselves. That her uh, her husband also uh, was caught up in a sex scandal. Oh, yeah. Um, as, as they all were, weren't they? Yeah. Uh, yeah. l- l- look up the uh, the famous phrase associated with Jimmy Swaggart at some point. It's interesting because like because a lot of the stuff that's going on with Jim Baker in this movie, Jim Baker's played by Andrew Garfield. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the stuff is actually off camera because in the end of the day, the movie is told from Tammy Faye's perspective. Yeah. yeah. So there's a lot of stuff with Jim that's actually like a little bit at arm's length. And I, it's another one where I feel like, you know, it was perfectly fine to let this be a two-hander. It's perfectly to, to fine to Jim show us his perspective yeah, well, a little bit more. Well, but this film, just like uh, the documentary film that it's based on, uh, yeah. there's a 2000 documentary film also called The Eyes of Tammy Faye. Uh, it, it's trying to redeem her. Jim Baker, uh, according to both of these narratives, is the less re- redeemable one. He's the one who committed the crimes. He's the one who went to prison. Uh, Tammy Faye... Uh, was far more modest and honest in her approach to the world. Mm. Uh, and in fact, I think some of the more interesting scenes are near the end of the movie where uh, Jim Baker's already in prison. What has happened to Tammy Faye now? Yeah. Who, and there's a wonderful scene where uh, she just sort of gets out of her car and she, she has some snarky teenage neighbors who are kind of laughing at her from afar. Oh, I love that And she scene. walks up to them and introduces herself. Yeah. Saying, I, I'm a human being. Let's have a conversation. She's actually very kind. Yeah. And uh, by all accounts, Tammy Faye Baker was quite a kind human being. A little bit outlandish. Yeah. But, but who can't but you know, kind? If, if that's the... If... It's not the worst you could say about it, uh, but if, if that was the worst you could say about somebody... Nice. Yeah. Uh, obviously, there was more going on. But, um, yeah, I think this comparing this to I, Tanya is a really good one. Because I think Tanya Harding and Tammy Faye Baker, their legacy is way more superficial than the people they actually were. Yeah. They made, they made serious mistakes. And I'm not even saying I forgive them for the things that they have done. But they're human beings. Mm. And the biopics that we've seen illuminate who they were as human beings not just as a pop culture punchline or not just this one single thing they did in their life you do get a grander sense of who they were and how the events of their lives and the choices that they made led them to the thing that they are now notorious for Mm. that's good biopic storytelling yeah that's that's what we should want from a biopic is to actually feel like we know people better yeah, uh, I think that's the bare minimum we should ask for. This, this, however, I think is a little bit more than Michael Showalter as a director can can chew. Maybe he, so. he bit off a little more than he can chew. He, Maybe uh, so. Great character work, but yeah, as the, the, as a larger like grand mission statement maybe he's not there yet it's also his biggest production you compare the look of this to like the big sick he just brought a camera into an apartment like there's like (laughs) a good looking movie come on the big sick is not a good looking movie it does what it needs to do the the, the characters the acting the story all of that is wonderful in the big sick i like that Uh, the the, the writing is wonderful in the movie but it it looks like they're filming at just some guy's apartment. I, it, but it they are just filming drab. at some guy's apartment, and it is drab. And they're, that's they, I think they did nothing to like give it any kind of look. Is my point? It looks really amateur. I think you're being a little harsh, but okay. I'll let it, I'll <laughs> let it go. I like it more than you. I, compared to no, I love the movie. I just yeah. think it's drab and ugly. Uh, I see your point, but I disagree. <laughs> Uh, but you compare it to this movie. This is like yeah. production design and really slick. Clearly, they're working with a much bigger budget. And, uh, yeah, I think Michael Showalter is doing really good uh, to balance all of these big stars in this bigger production, but he's not 
delving into the material quite as deeply as I think he either would like to or just didn't aim to. Well, in or this film. well, the material it would be one thing if the material never went there. Yeah, and this was simply a character piece, and this was just like almost like a chamber room piece between just yeah. the two of them. That would probably have been a very good movie. Uh, but no, the the movie keeps bringing up these grander ideas and this idea that these characters are you can unlock an entire generation or an mm. entire new wave of Christian ideology just through looking at them. And yeah. you th- and you think about movies that were able to, whether they were uh, uh, fictional or or you know thinly veiled. Uh, who were, that were able to illustrate such a thing. Look at Citizen Kane, for example. Mm-hmm. Look at the way that that movie uh, depicts, you know, this birth of the twenty of the twentieth century and the birth of this like mass mainstream journalism through the perspective of this one character, at least the, the how people mm-hmm. felt about this one character. Yeah. That's a tall order. I'm not saying this movie needs to be Citizen Kane, but <laughs> my point is that the movie could have had yeah, some well, ambition and gone a little bit beyond just the characters. The, the idea. I feel like visiting uh, the, I guess, sort of the golden age of televangelism in like the early to mid '80s uh, is is an important era to visit because sure. Fox News is a direct child of this, mm. this sort of proselytizing using television to spread essentially a, a very specific agenda, uh, kind of sprung forth from uh, this particular flavor of it, sprung forth from Someone's gonna... uh, televangelism. Yeah. And I, I feel like this was a good opportunity to start to do that, and they, they didn't do it. So it was a little disappointing. Yeah. But there's room for, there's, if anyone else wants to do something a bit uh, grander, oh. there's be a good TV show out of something like this. Oh, as definitely. Well. Like, yeah. Yeah, but, um, but in any case, uh, ultimately not maybe as good as it could have been, but I, I'm glad we both liked it. Uh, let's talk about uh, the next new release, uh, this is a film written, I'm sorry, not written by, uh, starring and directed uh, by Clint Eastwood at the age of 91, uh, which is, there aren't a lot of people who continue working in the industry in Hollywood <laughs> until that age. And it's actually really, really cool that we get to have filmmakers with that perspective still getting to tell stories yeah. because this is a very youth-oriented industry. And uh, and Clint Eastwood, it, at, who filmed this when he was 90, yeah. is still playing a 60-year-old. <laughs> they never say his age. They never say his age. That's the thing. But the, the character way... seems to be treated like a 60-year-old, but Clint Eastwood seems to be playing him like a 90-year-old. Well, so I'm never yeah. really 100% sure... How? Because I know some people were saying like, "Ah, oh, he's too old for this role." I thought the point was that he was too old. He he's an old guy, but he Clint Eastwood has been playing the "I'm getting too old for this" since as long ago as Unforgiven. Oh, uh, I think even before the, that, the, I think yeah, the last the last like one or two uh, uh, like Dirty Harry movies, he was yeah, still it's like, I'm, I'm getting too 80s. old for this. The 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 aged out cowboy, and he's been doing the aged out cowboy longer than he was doing cowboys. Now that's true. Uh, in this one, he's playing, yes, a cowboy. He's playing, he plays a former rodeo star. It's present day, by the way. Yeah, set in the present day. And he's hired by a friend of his, played by Dwight Yoakam, to... Who speaks only in exposition. Like, it's an incredible performance. <laughs> like, every single line of dialogue he has is just exposition. It's a bit clunky, honestly. Uh, uh, a, a bit, a bit. But, but uh, uh, he's, he's he, yeah. Dwight Yoakam hires uh, his friend, Clint Eastwood, uh, for quite a number um, uh, large amount of money, Dwight Yoakam is very rich, to go to Mexico and find his uh, estranged 13-year-old son. Yeah. Who, uh, who, who's, his mother uh, 
took him uh, to Mexico and his mother is Mm -hmm. evidently some sort of big wig in like local crime in Mexico. Yeah. And uh, Dwight Yoakam tells Clint Eastwood that he's concerned that his son is being abused somehow. And he wants Clint Eastwood to, he can't go down to Mexico for legal reasons. Mm -hmm. Fair enough. Uh, I I guess he's not, I guess he's also not a very good person. He's got some, some shit on his rap sheet. Uh, But he says, Clint Eastwood, will you please go down to Mexico, find my 13 year old son and bring him up here, please. Mm. And Clint Eastwood uh, says, who really apparently owes Dwight Yoakam one. Like, that's mm. the whole point of the scene, is Dwight Yoakam saying, dude, you, well, you, I, you've been a drunk, you've been a layabout, yeah. you, were, you were a terrible rodeo guy for so long, I've, it, I've cut you slack for so many decades, you owe me. He's, uh, we say he's former rodeo star. He was a rodeo star back in the 70s, like yeah. a long, long time ago, and he injured yeah. his back. And he's, he's been coasting on that for a long time. And he's been like yeah, teaching horseback riding ever since then. Yeah. So he goes down to Mexico, and he finds the kid, and the kid, he's a little punk. You know, he's he's been working in a cockfighting ring. And the most endearing thing about the whole movie is that the kid will re- refuses to go anywhere without his rooster. His rooster, who is Macho. His name is Macho. Uh, and uh, Clint Eastwood and the kid it absconds with the kid, even though the mom says, you're not making it out of Mexico. And they end up on the run. And they end up, most of the movie is actually them hiding out in a small mm-hmm. town, like just out in the middle of nowhere, just waiting it out waiting until like people stop looking for them and it's just them getting comfortable in a community and this kid getting some sense of stability and clint eastwood having something to do with his life again uh clint eastwood has always been a very gentle director um mostly he's made some violence drifter is a very well and you know fierce movie but you know he 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 dabbles in brutality mystic river is a pretty brutal film um excuse me oh you're dropping things um but uh, he's he's made a good number of films that are are very calm, even if they're dealing with pretty harrowing subject matter. Mm. Uh, so oftentimes to a fault, if you ever seen his Jersey Boys, like this is a musical oh, and you're yeah. gonna make it calming. That movie what the has heck are you no doing? energy. Not that movie at all. Has no energy at all. It is such a shame because that's yeah. good material. <laughs> it's fun material. That movie. Ooh, there's that's yeah, not but, a fun film. Yeah, films like Hereafter and Changeling, like these things, sort of gently crest, and this is. Uh, he's on camera again, and things are moving along very gently. And it is about how uh, the Clint Eastwood character uh, enters into people's circles, and they are just sort of calmed by his very presence. Yeah. Uh, according to the screenplay, he's a lot more active than we actually see Clint Eastwood acting. Uh-huh. Uh, there's a, a scene in the movie where the cops come by, and he has to sort of like duck behind something, like he's hiding from the cops. Uh-huh. But Clint Eastwood is 91; he's not going to like drop and roll on the ground. <laughs> no. So he just sort of like walks behind a box and stays there. It's there's, like, there's a scene yeah. in which, uh, in order to like earn his keep, Clint Eastwood has to uh, help uh, tame a horse. Uh-huh. There's like a guy with a ranch, and he's they have a wild horse, and he's like, "Yeah, I got to break this horse, otherwise it won't be like domesticated." And uh, Clint Eastwood's like, "Oh, I can do that," and he gets up on the horse. And then uh, his stunt double does a lot of really good yeah, rodeo for, riding. For a nice nice and, long shot there. And then we just cut to Clint Eastwood, and he's clearly in front of a screen. And listen, I'm going to tell you something right now. Mm. Clint Eastwood is 91 years old. I am not asking him to do his own horse stunts no, on a rodeo. No, no. That is completely inappropriate, uh, but it is noticeable. If, it is a little noticeable. What I want is for him to play a 90-year-old. Yeah. Not a 60-year-old. Uh, there's a scene earlier in the movie when he's talking to uh, the boy's mother. Mm. And she's trying to sort of 
like coerce him into she's staying silent herself and yeah and she, and she says why don't you crawl into bed with me and she's yeah. wearing like a nighty and he's standing there like and what am i gonna do are you gonna help yeah. me into bed yeah <laughs> well it's not even if, that if, if, it's just, just like like a, like a virile sixty-year-old who still might be able to bring it, then yeah. that's one thing. But, but here's the. Th- but that's why he's, he's I an was elderly con- man. That's why I was convinced that even though the movie kind of, because originally this is based on a novel, a novel the character is supposed to be younger. But um, I don't know. I don't see a problem with this being an older man, so long as he does older man things. And yeah. The idea that someone would throw themselves at him sexually. And he would just be like, you know what? I'm not. I'm no. That's not where I'm at yeah. right now. That actually, I actually liked that. There's, but um, I, I reviewed this uh, briefly, nowhere near as long as we got to do here on a KCRW uh, last week. I did a show called Press Play with the great Amy Nicholson, wonderful film critic. Yeah. Um, she she had me on her podcast once, yeah, well, a couple of years back, uh, and uh, she made the point that. You know, you can talk about, like, how gentle this movie is all you want, but Clint Eastwood's still kind of playing this, like, majorly, like, puffed-up version of himself where everything he does... Everything everything he does is wonderful, and the only two women in the movie just throw themselves at him immediately. And that's true. I think that's fair to say. Uh, You know, Clint Eastwood has has a persona, and he's been playing with it ever since he developed it. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think it's interesting how funny he thinks it is. That he has this persona that he's eager to like <laughs> subvert it by like doing multiple movies with an orangutan sidekick, or like doing this movie where he's got like funny scenes with a rooster. Like he's not doing it unironically. I think he, he has some self awareness of it, but it's true he's playing his you know shit kicker hero persona. What I like about this movie is how economical it is. There's a lot of this movie that just Clint Eastwood knows we don't need to see. Oh. There's a bit where, uh, you know, he's the, the, the kid's mom uh, lives in a big estate and she's having some sort of party or something the, the day that Clint Eastwood gets there. So he just like wanders in with the crowd. Uh-huh. And then we just see like two security guards look at him. And then we don't need the scene where he tries to blend in. We don't need the scene where they try to stop him. We don't need the scene where he um, acts tough. We don't need the scene where they threaten to rough him up. We don't need to build suspense that they take him into. It just cuts to the conversation later. Where it's just like, <laughs> so you want my son. Huh? Like, boom. We don't need any of that shit. Yeah, yeah. And there's something that is so impressively confident about that kind of storytelling. Where we're just going to cut through all the bullshit. And I know what this movie needs to get going. And I'm not going to bother with anything else. And I like that. I think that's actually cool to watch. I like... I, I, the, I, I miss that kind of efficient filmmaking, that's yeah. for sure. And and I think that's kind of filmmaking that I tend to see mostly from older filmmakers who aren't trying to prove themselves mm. by putting in a bunch of extraneous fun stuff. There's nothing wrong with that in theory, but there, there's a lot of filmmakers who, as they get older, just simplify. Yeah. And they, they don't do what they don't need to do. And there's something really elegant about that. Um, I like Clint Eastwood's relationship with the kid. What is what is the kid's name? Uh, the 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 actor. Oh uh, well, the the character was um, was Raphael. Yeah. Um, the actor is named uh, Eduardo Minute. Yeah. His name. And and you know what? I think he shows a lot of promise. I think he's really 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 fun. Um, I think they're they're sweet together. I think. Uh, yeah, I I I, don't, I like this. I don't yeah, I don't yeah. I don't love it, but it's maybe the. It's, I think it's my favorite Clint Eastwood movie, and I've missed a couple of big ones. Okay. 
Like I didn't see Gran Torino or I didn't mm. see um, J. Edgar. I see a couple of big ones, but J- I think this, J. Edgar is a sticker. But you know yeah, what I mean. But it was J. it was Edgar, big. It yeah. was supposed to be like you know built up a lot. But like there's a couple of major releases I haven't seen. But uh, I think this is my favorite Clint Eastwood movie in quite a while. Okay. I just I just dug the vibe. I think <laughs> I, I think uh, Clint Eastwood was just more there for the vibe than anything else. Really. Yeah, well, it. it... At, at the end, it ends up striking as sort of a mood piece. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is a kind of a fantasy. Uh, there's there's a scene at the end where they just get to walk over the Mexican border, and that's that's like, oh, well, wait the, a minute, what is... Well, well, because there's a rich white guy on the other end. I, I understand that. Yeah, that, but, you know, that I buy. But there's like, I like, buy that the rules don't like, apply no, to, a, to a rich it's white just guy. A, it's just a road, and there's an open fence. Like, there's no... like. Well, that's actually true for no, a lot of agents a lot or anything, it, but... but uh, uh, Big, yeah, it's a big fucking border. Okay, there, there's no mention of like uh, modern immigration messes that have been going on over the last well, couple of years. Uh, I, the movie I kept thinking about while I was watching it was Rambo: Last Blood. And uh-huh. The way that that movie, because that movie is also about like an aging badass going into Mexico to bring a, a teenager back to America. Mm-hmm. But in that one, it's all about how Mexico is this horrible hellscape. It's, it's like, it's and like, like hell, yeah. It's yeah, filmed really it's dark really and insulting awful. insulting and cruel. Uh, just about, like, just the whole attitude mm. about non-white people in that movie. And, like, there are, like, a few exception characters, but it feels like they're there to get away with just how transparently superficial yeah. they're going to treat all anything negative about Mexico. Um, here there is more nuance than that, and here, you know, it's not about, I'm going to kill everybody. He didn't kill anybody. Mm. <laughs> he punches a guy once. <laughs> like, that's it. That's the whole, that's the whole action yeah. of the film. It's not about that. And I like that. Yeah, it, it has a bit of the, um, it has kind of like a young adult novel feel to yeah, it to me. I can like, see that. Yeah, uh, and, yeah. and when I say young adult novel, like not the modern post Harry Potter stuff, but like the Dear Mister Henshaw kind of yeah, era, coming of age stories. Yeah. yeah, or Hatchet. If you ever read a book yeah. like Hatchet when you were a yeah. kid, just a, a a kind of young boys adventure novel. But it was from uh, the kids' very perspective, calming. it would be that. Yeah, yeah. 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 It's like it, it's about an an old ex cowboy and a boy with a pet chicken, and they're on the road <laughs> together. And yeah, that's that's a, a book I might have got from the library totally. when I was a kid. Yeah, uh, it is based on a book as well. Um, and yeah, Clint Eastwood I think is trying to capture a, a little bit of that like plucky spirit. It's an oversimplified world. It's a calm world. It's not, in, it's not realistic at all. Not particularly. Uh, and, I'm not, also... and, and that's not in reference to how Clint Eastwood is, is too old to be playing this part. It's yeah, just, it's just uh... everything's a little simple. Everything is a little clean. Yeah, yeah. Everything's a little clean, but um, I mean, so, yeah, I mostly liked it. So yeah, it has that kind of very calming, almost childlike view of, of the story. Well, and that's, that's, that's got, that can be appreciated. Well, I think it's a, again, it, it, it's, it's a Western. And it's a it's a neo western. It's set in the present day, but it's still got that idea of, you know, here at the frontier, here like far away from where, you know, the hustle and bustle of urban living. Things are a little bit more straightforward in some respects, mm-hmm. and as a result, sometimes those things can get warped, and people can do bad things. Uh, and uh, you know, the morality is what we make of it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I again, I I dig this one. I dig it a lot. Uh, tell me about. I'm mad. At, I wanted to make time for this because it looks really fun. I have no mm-hmm. idea how it turned out. Uh, but tell me about the new Netflix movie, Nightbooks. Nightbooks. Uh, Netflix action movies leave me cold. Uh, mm. We reviewed Kate last week, and I just yeah. that movie angered me. I just did not like Kate. Um, Netflix action movie. Yeah, well, I know Extraction got a lot of uh, ballyhoo, <laughs> but I did not like Extraction. I liked a the old, good shots. I liked the fun. old guard. I thought that one was okay, but um, it was okay. I, I thought the the 
the I thought the actual movie was fine. I thought all of the mythologizing was pretty crap. Yeah. Oh, oh, you know what? I liked Project Power. I thought that one was. Oh, right. that one yeah. was good. That's actually one of the better superhero uh, movies of the most recent years. But yeah. where they're really knocking it out of the park, park uh, between this and also uh, the Fear Street movies, uh, is kids horror, horror for younger people, mm-hmm. and um, this is uh, to to cite what we were just saying about Cry Macho straight up young adult novel. This is like a, a, a fable um, out of sort of the R.L. Stein school. Cool. Um, it was directed by uh, David uh, Yaravesky, who did that movie Brightburn. Mm-hmm. Which um, I, thought got a, I thought was a little... Dis- I thought people were too eager to dismiss that. I thought oh, that was a pretty clever little horror movie. It, like, it's what, cute. It's what like if what Superman. It, what if Superboy was a horror villain? Yeah, yeah it's, it's a, a good idea. 12-year-old Superman, but he's a, a murderer. Yeah. And, neat. and can and he can yeah. essentially destroy the world. So why done me? Yeah, uh, that, that's a yeah. pretty good flick. Uh, this this film, yeah, is it's done by the guy who did Brightburn. It's produced by Sam Raimi, so you know you're gonna t- gonna get into something a little bit wilder. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's about a young boy. He's about uh, ten, and he had we get to see him flee a haunted house birthday party where nobody's shown up. He, oh. uh, and he's tearing like posters off of his wall, and he's uh, throwing a- away all of his horror books, and he's taking up big notebooks of stories he's written. He's saying, "This is all stupid." Now he's at the end of his rope from something in his life, and he's charging down to his uh, his New York building's furnace so he can burn all of his stories. Wouldn't you know it? On the way, he passes a, an apartment whose doors open a crack. What's inside? But a plate of pumpkin pie and a TV playing his favorite movie, The Lost Boys. <laughs> And wow, we're at that point, huh? Yeah, that's wow. that's the classic movie. We're we're old, William. Okay. <laughs> it it never stops being like a oh oh well yeah. all right. And indeed, uh, because the, that's that's retro for a kid to be into. Like if, if we were like like if that was that movie was made when we were kids, that would be like oh the kid's favorite movie is Bride of Frankenstein. Like it's, wow, yeah. it's like forty years old now. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, 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 it's movies about, 40, about forty years old. Just uh, funny. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, the. In fact, that song from The Lost Boys, uh, uh, that one, there's a cover of that at the end of this movie as oh, well, so fun. there's a few little parallels. That's a great soundtrack, that movie. <laughs> it was got amazing soundtrack. Uh, but yeah, he wanders in, kind of hypnotized by The Lost Boys. Uh, it's a red-tinted, and everything's really dark in this yeah. kind of spooky apartment. Uh, the door vanishes behind him, mm-hmm. and he passes out after eating some eating the pie. Mm-hmm. He wakes up, and wouldn't you know it, there's a witch. With blue hair. Nice. She's played by Kristen Ritter. Oh. And she says, I'm going to eat the child. And she has uh, a, another uh, kid is there. And clearly she's been imprisoned by the witch for a while. Yeah. Uh, so she kidnaps children and will eat them. And he says, wait, wait, I, I can I can tell you stories. He tries to out his way out of this thing. Yeah. Or uh, Tales from the Dark Side, the movie. Sure. My, what? My, that's my, that's my, the my, modern version. <laughs> Shares on right up to Tales from the Dark Side of the movie. Yeah, Tales um, from the Dark Side of the movie opens with Debbie Harry is a witch, and there's a little boy in a cage in her kitchen, and he's trying to delay her from cooking him by telling her scary stories yeah, that she yeah. might like. Uh, and that's a great setup for an anthology film, but this yeah. is not an anthology film. Okay. Uh, which was a little upsetting because I thought there were, that's where it was setting it seems up like for. Seems like natural place to go. Yeah. And yeah, so he sits on a stool with his book. She's sitting on a couch in her wild outfits with a hairless cat that can turn invisible. Uh, the hair, the invisible hairless cat is uh, the source of one of the most disgusting sight gags I've seen in a while wow. where he's eating breakfast and he puts down his sandwich and we see no cat, but a cat 
turd appear in the air. Oh, <laughs> like, oh, like poops on his sandwich while the cat oh, itself is invisible. That's disgusting. Yeah, that's pretty gross. Uh, that's not nice. Here's where this film is. It's willing to be a little gross and it's willing to be a little bit scary. It's a lot and, gross. Uh, and it has that sort of wild, sort of well, like colorfully lit, uh, busy production design of like a Tim Burton kind of a movie. Mm. Uh, and he starts to tell her stories, and uh, the witch is outraged because all of the magic stuff he makes up isn't accurate. Ah! Okay, that's <laughs> like, cute. Yeah. Everybody knows ghosts can't haunt there. That's not what vampires do. And so she she says, I'm, I sleep during the day. You have to write me stories during the day, and at night you read them to me. If they have happy endings, you're out. If they're if they're inaccurate, you're out. So he starts going through her gigantic library, and she has the library of Babel. Yeah. Like yeah. she has this magical door, you open it up, and it stretches up for you know, this gigantic tower inside the apartment. Okay, and it's full of you know millions of books. While he's researching, he actually finds notes written in the margins of the books left behind by other children, and he f- has found that maybe if he reads all of these notes left behind by previous children, he can find a way to escape. Uh, he has to tend to the witch's evil garden during the day, which has these really awesome little egg monsters. Like, the eggs hatch, and these little kind of skull-faced tentacle monsters start chasing after the two children, and they're genuinely scary, but also really cool looking. You're making this sound really cool. It's really cool. Nice. Uh, it's, it's actually really exciting. Uh, huh. There's a lot of... There was a trend in horror uh, from, like, the R.L. Stein uh, era of it, where... I feel like children's horror wasn't trying to scare the children. No. It was banding about with horror imagery, yeah. you know, werewolves and the, living ventriloquist dummies and what the have you. characters were scared, the reader was not. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, this this one is actually trying to engage with children to scare them. Right. It's rated PG. There's no, like, violence or, you know, anything truly disturbing in here, but this is something that might actually frighten a child. Mm. And... I think that's very good. I think kids like being scared. Um, if if kids are any anything the way I was, I was really drawn to horror as a little kid. I liked scary stories. I was too afraid to read them, but I always wanted to hear about them. Uh, I, I liked sort of going into the horror section of my local video store and just sort of scare myself by looking at the, the scary covers of the movies. I wouldn't rent the movies. They were too frightening. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I liked, you know, it's like uh, I, I remember uh, when... A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3 came out. There was an image on the back of the gigantic, like, slimy Freddy Krueger head swallowing oh, yeah. a, a young girl whole. Oh, yeah, like he's a giant worm. Yeah, like yeah, he's a gigantic worm. Still one of the great images of the series. Yeah, ju- yeah. just that image was on the back, and that Terrifying. scared the hell out of me. Oh, so yeah. I, I, every time I would go, I'd, like, look at the back of that. It's like, uh-huh. yep, still scared, all right. <laughs> I feel like kids engage with horror movies uh, in that way. They are drawn to them, even if they're even as they're scared by them. And you know, you watch the Goosebumps movies; those are fun. That first one, especially, first one's quite good. Yeah, Uh, but yeah, they're not scary. There's not a lot of scary moments in that. Nightbooks is a frightening Hansel and Gretel type fable where kids are being held prisoner by an evil witch, and what are they going to do to get out of it? And it ends up playing into the uh, the Hansel and Gretel myth a lot. There's a unicorn that shows up, and it's a terrifying unicorn. <laughs> yeah, all these monsters and creatures and this weird uh, prison three-hander between these two children and this evil witch. And Kristen Ritter, of course, is having a grand old time She's great. camping it up as, as this blue-haired witch. Hmm. Uh, yeah, this this is really, really fun. Okay. It's a good Halloween-type movie, like for a Halloween party 
type movie. Yeah, that's great. And yeah, I, yeah. I feel like uh, Netflix is really uh, tapping into something with these horror movies for younger audiences. I know the Fear Street movies are rated R, but I think, you know... They're somebody, a high school slumber party. Yeah, a high school slumber party, even junior high slumber party movies. Uh, they function perfectly well, especially yeah. that first one. Oh, yeah. Um, by the time you get to the third, it's like, no, you're involved in the mythology. By We're now. wrapping that's up, not, that's wrapping not, that's up the a, movies. That's now. not a party movie The first anymore, two are kind of work on their own, but the last one is pretty much just a wrap-up. It's still a good wrap-up, though. Um, but that's really cool. Okay, I'll have to check that out. That's exciting. All right. Well, then the last thing that we're talking about today uh, is a new comedy from directors Justin Long, who you may remember from movies. I've, I've seen him act. And uh, Christian Long, who I believe is his brother. Uh, they wrote and directed a comedy called Lady of the Manor, uh, which stars Melanie Linsky, international treasure Melanie Linsky. I like Melanie, Melanie Linsky. Spectacularly underappreciated actor. She's really funny. She's great in dramatic roles. She can play a terrifying villain. I think I'm the shield. She scared the crap out of me. She uh, 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 she was in the Frighteners. Yes, she was. Briefly. She had no lines. Yeah. She was just a cop in the background. Right. But uh, Peter Jackson made that movie. He wanted to do, to do her a favor. Because he, she was uh, she one was of his in, co-stars uh, in Heavenly, Heavenly Creatures, Creatures, which is a great motion picture. Um, so Melanie Linsky plays a stoner. Uh, who her whole gig is uh, she gets stoned. That's about that. Uh, <laughs> she, she gets stoned and she, she makes a living uh, delivering weed to people's houses. Uh, and uh, she ends up delivering, she gets the address wrong. She goes to like something something street instead of something something avenue. Uh-huh. And she ends up accidentally walking into like a sting operation to catch sex predators, mm-hmm. and now she ha- she's been like she- she's now she has to actually like be on like a sex predators like registry. So now no one will hire her for anything, and the only thing she can get a job doing uh, is working for Ryan Philippi. Ryan Philippi is this shitty old money douchebag who's never had to work a day in his life and he's, he's just been given he's uh, played those numerous times hasn't he yeah, yeah but this one's this one's playing in like his 40s but okay. he hasn't grown up and it's actually kind of funny um but uh, he's been put in charge of the family manor which is now which is a tourist attraction okay. people go in and then uh, they have like a tour guide who pretends to be the lady of the manor dresses in the clothes and welcome to my house i was born in 1870 and I was, <laughs> and I died in the, me, under mysterious circumstances, that kind of thing. Uh, and he hires her to be the new one of those because the previous one wouldn't sleep with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Melody Linsky is, uh, has no standards. Oh, and no. she's just like, sure, whatever. And so she, she gets a free place to stay and she gets to do this gig and she does absolutely no research whatsoever and she's making it all up as she goes along and she pisses off the ghost of the house so much that Judy Greer shows up and says, you're doing it wrong! Judy Greer is the ghost? Judy Greer is the ghost. <laughs> okay, I love Melanie Linsky and yes. I love Judy Greer. That's a great two-hander for oh. any movie. I wish this movie was funnier. Oh, I really, oh, really do. They oh, no. just it's putting like, them—it's it's another Blythe spirit. It's not. Well, I didn't see the new Blythe spirit. The original yeah. Blythe spirit's great, but like they, just, they, they, they got a good cast and they just yeah. whittled it away. I, 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 the setup is kind of funny. Um, there's a lot of potential here to really talk about because it's set in the South. It's and uh, Judy Greer was, um, you know, sort of a, a, a rich. Lady, but it was like after the Civil War, and so like, but it still feels like 
we're dancing around some shitty history here and we just refuse mm. to engage with it. Okay. But even if you leave that out, this is a very chillaxed movie, and I think to a fault. Oh. The uh it's very it's obviously a cheap production, that's not the end of the world, but it never really feels like this is an actual historical house. It, I, I'm, oh. I'm going off that on faith more than anything. Sure. It doesn't really feel like we're in like a fancy old place that's been like preserved in any way. It feels like a nice house, and you put some old stuff in it. Uh, Melanie Linsky is funny. Judy Greer are funny. They actually don't have any scenes together for way too long. Oh, once they do, they're mostly inseparable. But but also once they do, they have less to do together than you'd think. And more of it than I really was 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 happy with involves farting. Like there's there's more farting than I thought there'd be in this movie. And listen, I'm not saying there's no such thing as a good fart joke, but it's been mined to death. Like it's hard to do. And I don't think I think this movie has like one good fart joke in it out of like twenty. <laughs> it's a lot of fart jokes. Uh, the the fart joke is a gentle a gentle art. It is, and then doing it right is difficult. Yeah, I, I. If you see it in a kids' movie, it's bad. Mm-hmm. I, I haven't seen a good fart I joke. In I a can't kid recall. Movie. Uh, often they're just vulgar, but occasionally yeah. they're so vulgar you love them. Uh, Blazing yeah. Saddles remains classic, the gold standard. Gold standard, classic mm. fart jokes. Uh, again, there are good fart jokes, but they're hard to pull off. Um, and uh, this one doesn't quite nail that. Um, there's a, I think it was Gene Siskel who had the uh, expression, which is, is what's, what would be more entertaining, this movie or watching the same cast have dinner? Yeah, that, you know? that, that was, that's a Siskelism. Yeah, uh, and I was thinking about that a lot when I was watching this, because especially at the end credits when they have a lot of bloopers, the bloopers are funnier than the movie. Just seeing Judy Greer just pal around with Melanie Linsky and like <laughs> do silly jokes that have nothing to do with the plot so they couldn't be naked into the movie. They're so wonderful together. I just want to listen to their podcast. The movie itself isn't that great. There's not a lot of laughs in it. It's the story is thin, but that's not the that's not the biggest problem with it. It's nice to see Melanie Linsky like throw herself into this really unlikable character because she's Melanie Linsky mm. and she can't actually do that. <laughs> like she can't be unlikable. But she's can play a character who is who should be unlikable, but it's just basically her pers- her personality, her persona, her delivery makes that character very palatable. Whereas I think almost any other actor, they would just be hard to watch. Oh, okay. I, I guess that's what I'm saying here. I think she she makes a difficult character work, but yeah, the the overall just the comic timing of the movie is very slack. Uh, the writing isn't as sharp as it could be. It doesn't really engage with what it's really talking about. And it's a bit of a waste of the cast, unfortunately. Um, if you really, really like Melanie Linsky and Judy Greer, and admittedly you should, uh, might be worth a watch, but I wouldn't expect a lot from it. Mm. This is, this is, a, this, this has like that straight to video patina on it back mm. when that meant like, uh, this is only so good. Like it's that, but again, Judy Greer is, is a, a delight. Melanie Linsky is a delight. That's about as far as I'm, I, I can go with it. Uh, so on the critically acclaimed scale, that's how we review our movies. We review films on a scale of C- minus to C+. Plus. Uh, C is average, some good, some bad, bada bing, 
Average. Bob's your uncle. C-plus is above average. That's uh, everything from we genuinely recommend it mm. to this is the best movie ever made. Anything in that area, boom, C-plus. And C-minus is below average. Generally speaking, we don't recommend it to the worst thing ever. Uh, and on that note, uh, I do have to give Lady of the Manor a, a C minus. It's a mild C minus. I'm not mad at the movie or anything like that. I just don't really know who to recommend this to unless you're like a really hardcore Melanie Linsky, Judy Greer fan. <laughs> uh, and, and I imagine you're out there, so fair oh, yeah. enough. But I think everyone else is going to find this just a little limp. Hmm. And it's a bit disappointing. Damn. Yeah. Uh, what about uh, Nightbooks? Nightbooks, I'm going to give that a C+. Nice. I, I think this is yeah, a sweet, colorful, energetic uh, story about uh, young kids who are into horror, and it's also genuinely scary for little kids. Mm. Um, yeah, it's it's just really sweet, great little film. That's great. Uh, okay, Crime Macho. Uh, a C. Okay. I, I, it's, it's gentle, so gentle it's not really leaving much of an impact. <laughs> Uh, Clint Eastwood can handle this kind of material, but there's a lot in it that's a little peculiar. Um, a lot of it that's so gentle it becomes insubstantial. But it's not a failure. Mm. Still, you know, sweet and watchable and relaxing. I don't know. I find the fact that it's a little insubstantial to be surprisingly full of substance. Okay. When you think about how the the various types of westerns, modern or or classic, mm. Clint uh, Clint has made in the in the past. To see him make one that shows like this Western mentality today is something that is just sort of fading out and we don't really need macho-ness anymore. Yeah, yeah. There's something about just how insubstantial this is that feels like a statement about what happened to masculinity and what happened to mm. the Western. Yeah. And I think it's kind of zen about it. And it's sort of like, and, and maybe we're all a little better off for that. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to do some mild C+. Not a huge C+, not a, not a best films of the year probably, but... Mm. I did like watching it. I do appreciate what I think uh, Clint Eastwood's going for here, and I was I was affected. I liked okay. it a bit. Uh, and then lastly, the eyes so of that, Tammy. That, that's a C plus. That's a C plus for All me. Right. Not a big C plus, but it's it's definitely recommended. And uh, lastly, the eyes of Tammy Faye. Uh, I like the lead performances a lot, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I think what I was complaining about how it, it sort of brushes up against this much larger, more interesting story, and then doesn't delve was. Frustrating enough to keep it from being a, a great film. Yeah. Uh, even though Jessica Chastain and Andrew Garfield really nail it. Um, yeah. So I'm just going to give it a C. Yeah. Uh, but it was really close. Yeah. <laughs> there, was, I, there was something there that they really could have explored. I agree with everything that you're saying. I agree that it never quite becomes a great film. But I do think it is consistently a good film. Mm. So I'm going to give it a C plus. Okay. Uh, it definitely could have been like, wow, what an amazing motion picture. Holy crap. But I think even if this was just... A decent biopic with these two great lead performances in it. That's enough to recommend for me. Okay. So that's a C plus for me as well. Uh, so that is critically acclaimed for this week. Thank you everybody for listening. We think you're neat. You're all really, really cool. Uh, every one of you. Yeah. Uh, and uh, want to give a very neat special keen. Want to give a very special shout out to all of our patrons over Patreon.com/slash Critically Acclaimed Network. Uh, without you, the show wouldn't exist. None of our shows would exist. We just we can never get over that. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. If you want to join up. Patreon.com slash Critically Acclaimed Network. We have a lot of exclusive shows over there for you to enjoy. We have an online hangout coming later this week. uh, And uh, shows dedicated to the Oscars, Star Trek, Batman, uh, commentary tracks galore. Um, So we got that. Uh, If you want to join in the conversation, there's a couple of different ways to do that. Uh, Most prominently, you can write us. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. 
We might read your email on an upcoming episode of We've Got Mail. So feel free to ask us questions, take us to task, ask for recommendations, whatever you want, basically. Mm -hmm. The the floor is yours. We also have a P.O. box for those who prefer to interact the old-fashioned way. Yeah, write write us in an actual physical letter. Uh, Our P.O. box is Critically Acclaimed Network, P.O. Box 641565. Los Angeles, California, 90064. And, of course, we're on Twitter. We are at Critic Acclaim, all one word. Uh, or we are individually at William Bibiani. I am at Whitney Seibold. Uh, I have a soap store with my partner, M. Lapis Da Silva. It's called Salt Cat Soap. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Salt Cat Soap. Uh, and there's also on Facebook as well. We just added that page. Uh, and there are links to our store on Etsy. We have a lot of new soaps that we've debuted in September. And uh, stick around because we're making some really fun Halloween soaps that we're going to debut in the near future. Mm. Uh, that uh, They're pretty cool, actually. It's some, <laughs> some stuff we've never done before, and it's really, really neat. Uh, but uh, and don't let that deter you from getting anything now because if you buy something now, you get a 10% off coupon you can use later. Uh, so enjoy. And uh, Whitney, tell them about your other podcast. Um, it, it's about to go monthly, but uh, it's still a weekly podcast. There's uh, 17 episodes so far that I do over on the screen's margins with one B. Peterson. Uh, they and I discuss what we saw on Ovid that week. Ovid is a really great streaming service. Uh, they offer all of the deep cut, deep cut art house stuff that you saw playing in your local museum and you couldn't make it to because it was 930 on a Wednesday. Uh <laughs> Or, uh, you know, films you couldn't didn't want to carve out time for because they were over five and a half hours in length. Or films that just, uh, those, no matter how good they are, various distributors in America bulk because yeah. uh, so, I don't uh, see I don't see an advertising hook here, you know? Yeah, if you're familiar with the studio's Icarus films or Grasshopper films, they do a lot of uh, international distribution. All of those movies end up settling on Ovid. And uh, B and I have been watching just whatever we want on Ovid, and we've had some pretty interesting conversations. We haven't found a dud yet. Wow. There hasn't been any that's been, like, truly disappointing. You watch the Criterion Channel, you might run into a bad one here so, or there. Sometimes they're historically significant, but not necessarily good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Ovid is is nothing but gems. So, uh, yeah, we have conversations. It's called All About Ovid uh, with all O's. On the last episode, I got to talk about Hotel Terminus, which is a four and a half hour documentary about the Nazi torturer Klaus Barbie, and this, Great. and uh, and how um, for about forty years he was abetted by the American government. Ugh. So it's yeah, it's an incredibly uh, incredibly depressing film. Um, but it's the kind of film film that uh, is available on Ovid, and I think it's actually a very valuable movie. And uh, I talked about other great films besides, like discovered a, a Japanese film called Happy Hour, which is really, really wonderful. They have Timing Lang films, they have Lav Diaz films, and B and I have uh, some very interesting conversations yeah, so head, about, head on uh, about over, what's on Ovid. So head on over to the screen's margins, and by all means, while you're there, look around. Mm-hmm. Uh, B. Peterson has put up a lot of their... Uh, uh, a lot of their Patreon exclusive content is now currently available just on that service. And that is a, a font of really excellent mm. cinema studies stuff, like deep dive stuff, like a whole giant retrospective on the works of Dora the Arsner, who if you don't know that name, you should. Uh, works both uh, podcasts about Frederick yeah, Wiseman, like a lot of really cool stuff. Uh, so check them out. Please do. Uh, and uh, anyway, I guess that's about it for Critically Acclaimed. Thank you, everybody, once again for listening. Have a great week. And uh, never forget, everyone's a critic. I want to go to the midnight show. I'm sorry, what?